Lord God, we thank you that you have given us your word in a myriad of different genres. That, Lord, we might be able to understand the complexities of the gospel, Father, in ways that hit our minds from different angles. I thank you, Father, for this narrative, this story, Lord, for it helps us to understand the gospel. It helps us to understand who you are. It helps us to understand who we are in light of you. It points out to us our tremendous need. And it even, Father, hints at the solution that you have provided. Lord, I pray that you'd help us today to be able to have ears that are able to hear your word, that your spirit would do a mighty deed in our midst, and that, Father, we would leave from this place knowing Christ, your son, and, Father, seeking to honor him as the Holy Lord always, and, Father, striving to live lives in the strength of your spirit that we might be lights pointing others to you. Thank you for all that you do in the midst of your people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you can approach the most important matters in life, you should first know the most important questions to ask. For instance, in deciding which college you should attend, you should start by asking, what kind of a vocation do I want to train for? Because if you don't, you might end up spending an awful lot of money training for something that you don't actually want to do. In determining who you should marry, it is very wise to ask the extremely important question, what kind of a spouse should I be pursuing? Because if you don't, you might end up in a marriage that is marked by great trouble and heartache. And in deciding whether or not to buy a home, you should honestly ask, what will my budget allow me to afford? Because if you fail to ask that question, you might end up facing the bitterness of foreclosure. Indeed, we are unlikely to suitably approach the most important matters in life if we don't first ask the right questions. Well, the Israelites in 1 Samuel 6 provide us with what I think is the most important life question that could be considered. In verse 20, the men from Beth Shemesh asked, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And when you consider how the Lord had just struck down many of them in verse 19 because of their great carelessness, it's clear that what they meant by that question was, who is able to be near the holy God without experiencing the wrath? of the holy God. Or to simplify the question, who can stand secure before the holy God? I think that is the most important question we can ask in life because the answer to it actually affects life now and all of eternity to follow. The Lord 
is the holy God, the question in verse 20 states. And his holiness means that he is separate from us, meaning that he is utterly above us. He is superior to us, his creation, in every way, in that he is immensely distinct from us, as one who is of an altogether better quality and stature from us. R.C. Sproul wrote, When the Bible speaks about God's holiness, the primary thrust of those statements is to refer to God's transcendence, to his magnificence, to that sense in which God is higher and superior to everything there is in the creaturely realm, end quote. And the holiness of God, as glorious and wonderful as it is presented to us in the scriptures, presents you and me with a very significant problem. Because not only are we not holy like God in our nature, transcendent and magnificent like he is, but our sin against the holy God has actually separated us from him and has put us in terrible danger of his righteous judgment. So, I think it is very important that we figure out how to be near the holy God without experiencing the wrath of the holy God. And our passage today will attempt to answer this question, who can stand secure before the holy God? And three answers to this are given to us in this chapter. Two of those answers are explicitly provided, and one of those answers is implicitly given. Well, in verses 1 through 9, the Philistines sought to return the ark of God to Israel and thereby placate the Lord's anger that had been against them. If you remember from last week in chapter 5, we saw a contest between the Philistines with their most favorite idol named Dagon against the almighty God of heaven. And long story short, God won that contest convincingly. The God of no rivals, he toppled Dagon's image twice, actually. He severed its head and its hands, and then he proceeded to plague the Philistine cities with an illness that led to tumors breaking out all over their bodies and even the death of many of their people. This led the Philistine lords to gather together and to eventually decide that this ark could not remain any longer among them, but must be returned to Israel. A decision that, if you think about it, would have been utterly humiliating for those rulers. Now, before we go any further, I think it might be helpful on this day in particular to point out that the Philistines mentioned in the Old Testament books of Judges and 1st and 2nd Samuel are not, at least directly, the Palestinians who have been a part of the grievous news over the last couple of weeks. The Philistines were a people who migrated to the land of Israel from areas around Greece and Turkey sometime during the days of Israel's judges. However, they quickly assimilated into the culture of the Canaanites who were already present in the land. And by the time, years later, of the Babylonian conquests, which included the captivity of all the people living in the land of Israel, they were heard of no more. Likely, they assimilated so much that they became virtually indistinguishable from the Canaanites. And the Philistines 
as an ethnic group, are no longer known today. The Palestinians who now reside in Israel are actually an amalgamation mostly from ancient Arab tribes like those from Egypt and from Jordan. Let us pray. Let us pray for God's hand of mercy upon what's happening in that land, even perhaps as we speak right now. But in verses 1 through 3, these Philistines were wondering how best to return this ark of God to his people. And it's there I want you to pick it up with me at verse 1. Verse 1, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. The priests and the diviners were the religious men among the Philistines. And they tended to their false gods of the people. And they also sinfully used divination to request the help of their idols. So not only were they leading their people in a fruitless, hopeless worship of gods who could never benefit them or save them, but they were also seeking guidance through the art of witchcraft, a practice which God obviously hates. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 12, it says, whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. He hates this kind of activity. Well, the question the Philistines asked of these men in verse 2 was, what shall we do with the ark of the Lord? You see, they also did not know how to stand secure before the holy God. And they didn't know how best to get rid of the ark in order to send it away because they were afraid of antagonizing the Lord God any further than they already had. For seven months, this ark had been in their midst, and all it had done was wreak havoc for them. So they wanted it gone. But how? How? Well, their answer was to accompany its return with a guilt offering. They sought to appease the God of heaven with an offering that might heal them from their sickness and tumors while removing his hand of judgment from them. Now, the advice of the Philistine religious men in the next several verses seems, if I'm completely honest, like something out of a Monty Python movie. Now, perhaps not all of you will know this reference, but the response by these priests and diviners sounds, to me at least, like something from the scene in the comedy movie The Holy Grail, where some medieval, ignorant peasants bring a woman whom they have dressed up like a witch before a supposedly wise and noble knight in order to get his advice on whether or not this witch should be burned. Of course, this is all satirical. It's meant for laughter. Well, the knight asks them, how do you know she's a witch? And he gets answers such as, she looks like one, and she turned me into a newt, and eventually they get the idea that she must be a witch because quite obviously she floats. So if you've not seen the movie, 
often. Just trust me that it is as odd and as crazy as it undoubtedly sounds. Well, these religious men of the Philistines, they came up with quite an idea for a guilt offering to placate the God of heaven. In verses 4 and 5, they determined to make five images of their tumors out of gold. The same number as the five lords of the Philistines. Yes, that's right. They decided to craft five golden nuggets in the shape of the very tumors that had been breaking out all over their bodies in the hopes that this will appease God. Now, on the one hand, I am curious as to what those would have looked like. But on the other hand, I have absolutely no desire at all to ever see those things. And along with the tumor nuggets, if I can call them that, they were also counseled to make five golden mice, which some surmise was because the Philistines had connected their sickness to the vermin which were around their cities in that day, much like the rats, which many centuries later helped spread the bubonic plague across Europe. Well, again, all of these golden images were to be formed to accompany the ark back to Israel in order to placate God's holiness. Well, however, lest we think that these men were completely out of their minds, verse 6 reveals to us some right thinking among them, thinking that should have led them towards true repentance and even the embrace, the embrace of the one true God. In verse 6, it says, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts after he had dealt severely with them? Did they not send the people away and they departed? You see, they knew of the Lord's reputation, how he had once delivered his people Israel from all powerful Pharaoh and the Egyptians with his mighty hand and his outstretched arm. And they knew that it would be foolish to harden their hearts against this God. Therefore, they sought to do anything possible to restore the ark of the Lord to his people and to satisfy his anger against them. And in their, and in their plan for determining whether the ark should and could be returned, their plan was actually pretty smart. Look at verse 7. It says, Now, when, now then, take and prepare a, a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put it in a box at its side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way. And watch. If it goes up on the way to its land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The thing about mother cows is that, whether, is, is that when they are nursing calves, they do not like to be apart from those calves for very long, and they certainly don't like to be apart from them from any distance. You see, they want their calves right there by their side so that they can feed them whenever they need to be fed. Well, these two milk cows were to have their calves sent away from them. And being yoked together, they were to pull the cart that would carry the ark and the box of guilt offerings back to Israel. If the cows returned in the direction of their calves, which by instinct they would naturally do, then the Philistines would be able to conclude that everything that happened to them was simply a matter of coincidence. However, if the cows went up to Beth Shemesh, 
away from the Philistines and toward the, the Israelites, then they would know for sure that it was the Lord who had done all of these things to them. Because the cows would then be doing something that mother cows would never do unless God intervened. Pretty smart. But do you know what wasn't so smart? Their utter failure to see themselves rightly before the God of heaven and their unwillingness to turn from their waywardness before him. Ultimately, they made the very poor decision to not look to the Lord for mercy. And this leads us to the first answer to our question, who can stand secure before the holy God? And the answer is, those who choose life apart from God can never stand before him. You see, idolatrous heart activity creates a chasm between people and God. The Philistines sought out other sources for satisfaction in their lives. They brazenly pursued other gods with the hopes of achieving the desires of their hearts. Dagon was supposed to give them success in war. Other gods were supposed to give them fruitful crops. And still others were to provide them with fertility and joy. But the Philistines were asking false gods to do what only the one true God could ever do. This left them separated from the God of heaven, defeated before the Lord of Israel, and utterly humiliated before him. And beyond all this, they would not admit the terrible reality that there was a great chasm between them and their creator, a chasm that they could never span. Well, my friends, all idolatrous heart activity does this thing. Yearnings to satisfy our pleasure, yearnings to satisfy our desire for comfort, Yearnings to satisfy our desires for relationship or honor and the Lord. The, 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 the yearnings for those such things will never secure us. We prioritize the pursuit of money or we accumulate stuff thinking that it will satisfy our longings. Or we chase after relationships that we're convinced will meet our deepest needs going from one to another to another. Or we attempt to achieve things that will bring us the recognition that we crave for or the power that we hunger after. And all of this has caused a breach between us and the holy God. It leaves us separated from the God of heaven and it puts us in danger before the Lord of all glory. And what's more, hardened postures towards God prevent people from turning from him. Not only were the Philistines deep in their idolatrous ways, but even when they did reflect upon the Lord's past salvation of Israel in verse 6, it didn't cause them to turn from their ways and embrace the holy God. This is, this is a very real danger for all people with such wayward hearts, that there will be a hardening and an unwillingness to turn for mercy to the God who is merciful at his very Sin, it hardens. It makes us resistant to God and his holy ways. And here's what this means for you. Your hearts, which crave 
a thousand and one things over God, your hearts have forged a wide chasm between you and him. As a morally fallen, sinful man or woman, there is a separation between you and the Holy One, a separation that will be made permanent if you remain as you are. There was a great danger here. The Philistines didn't recognize the ultimate danger, and I pray that no one here fails to see the great danger that we are in before the holy God of heaven. Now, in the rest of this passage, the Israelites sought to worship God for the return of his ark, but they did so carelessly. In verses 10 through 12, the Lord guided his ark of the covenant with Israel back to Israel. The Philistine men, they took the advice of their religious advisors and they yoked two milk cows together while shutting up their calves at home. They then placed the ark of the Lord and the box with the guilt offerings on a cart. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh and away from their calves, something that would really only happen if God intervened in the instincts of those cows. So here we find again that it was God who was providentially driving this entire narrative, as it is God who providentially drives every narrative. Now the response of the people of Israel, though joyful, was one that actually betrayed their significant heart problem. Notice verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. City of Beth Shemesh was mentioned actually in Joshua 21 as one of the Levitical cities where Levites lived, the priestly tribe of the people of Israel. So the men of this community should have known how to properly approach the ark of the Lord. And verse 13 tells us that when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced. But notice what it doesn't say there. It doesn't say that they quickly sought to avert their eyes from looking at the ark. And it also doesn't say that they took any efforts to cover it so that no one would look at it. You see, in Numbers chapter 4, God commanded that the ark be covered before the people and that it should only be seen by a certain group of priests who were set apart to tend to the ark. Because God is holy before sinners, he sought to illustrate this by preventing them from looking upon this important object. And also, in verse 14, it says that they split up the wood from the cart and they offered the two cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. But the law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 1 stated that only male members of the herd should be offered to the Lord. And these mother cows, which had just left their calves, should therefore have been considered ineligible in the offering. The Levites should have known this. And finally, in verse 15, they took the ark, along with the box of guilt offerings from those Philistines, 
and they set them up upon a great stone. And their goal, it seems here, was to put the ark up on a pedestal where all could see it, see it, and rejoice over it. Now, you might say that they were simply attempting to worship the Lord with joy over the return of the ark. And you might wonder what the big problem was. The big problem was they were not honoring the Lord as the holy God in their worship, who is separate and above them in his transcendence and his magnificence and his righteous purity. And they were extremely careless in their efforts to worship him. My friends, the Lord is not common like the false gods of the nations. He is the Holy One of Israel, and He must be worshipped as the glorious God who is, in fact, the only God. Indeed, the holy separation from sinners is the testimony of all of the Scriptures. In Exodus chapter 19, in verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. In Numbers chapter 4, it says that the Lord, with regard to his priests, he commanded them that they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. And a few verses later, it says in Numbers 4 verse 20, that they shall not go in to look on the holy things, even for a moment, lest they die. God gives the message all through the Old Testament that he is holy and glorious and his people, though he's loved him and he's provided a means for their salvation, until the day of Jesus Christ, there is no coming near. But there is a barrier, there is a separation between God and his creatures. And now, here at the end of our passage, the Lord responded to the people's carelessness with judgment leaving them wondering what to do, and leaving them with that all-important question, who can stand secure before him? Look at verse 19. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From that day, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Back in chapter 4, Israel had attempted to use God, treating his ark like a lucky charm. And this led to terrible defeat and sorrow. And now, due to their carelessness, God reminded them painfully of his holiness, vividly showing them that he must be feared. The actual number of those struck down in verse 19 those numbers are somewhat debated, as, in, as there are some issues in interpreting that number in the original Hebrew. But, but what's clear 
is that the people of Beth Shemesh had been struck with a great blow, it says. So great was this devastation that they were prompted to ask our question of the day, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? Or who can stand secure before the holy God? And this led them to send the ark to yet another location, Kiriath-Jerim, where some priests would house it with great unease. And this brings us to our second answer to that question, who can stand secure before the holy God? And it's this. Those who fail to honor his holiness can never stand before him. Those who fail to honor his holiness can never stand before him. God cannot accept people who do not humbly fear him. The Philistines had no fear of God. And the Israelites, as shown again and again through their history, failed to demonstrate a humble, holy fear of God. Century after century after century, God would go and make his appeal to them through the prophets. And century after century after century, they would put up a stiff arm and say no to the Lord and return to their idolatry. Indeed, all failure to meekly recognize him as the transcendent, magnificent, righteously pure Lord of all leads to a most deserving judgment. He simply cannot accept people who will not recognize how greatly their sin has offended him. He simply cannot accept people who will not recognize how greatly their sin has offended him. If sinners will not, like the Philistines or the Israelites or the Newport Richians, if we will not recognize how much our sin has offended to God, there is no hope. There is no hope. We are left in a place where we're seeking to worship God or any God on our own terms. And it's a state that leads us to destruction. You see, God, he cannot welcome people who are not righteous like him. He cannot welcome people into his holy, glorious presence who are not righteous like him. As that off-stated verse says in Romans 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. Several verses later, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us in this room is not righteous on our own. Every single one of us in this room has sinned and has fallen short of God's glory. We have not esteemed him as the holy God. We have fallen woefully short. And because he is the holy judge, the holy glorious God of justice, he must punish sin. And here's what this means for you. Your unwillingness to humbly approach God on his terms keeps you far from him. Your unwillingness to go to him on the terms that he has given has kept you far from him. He says, be holy. I'm holy. You be holy. You and I, we haven't been holy. And we have been kept far from him. Your inability to be holy in your character, as God is holy in his character, precludes you from being welcomed into his presence. If you're not holy like God, the holy God will not welcome you in. You 
You have failed to honor God's holiness, and there is nothing you can do to stand secure before him. You have no ability, you have no merit to offer. There's nothing you can do to stand secure in his presence. You are only under his judgment. However, a third answer is hinted at here. Who can stand before the holy God? Only the one made able to stand by God himself can stand before him. Only the one made able to stand by God himself can stand before him. God has pointed to the solution to our problem through this traveling ark all along. For the last several weeks, that's been the thing that he's been pointing us to all along. Atop that ark was where the primary sin sacrifice occurred on behalf of God's people, where they would sacrifice the, the animal. Its cover, the cover of that ark, was called the mercy seat, because when the sacrifice was made, God's mercy was then enjoyed. This, this instrument... This box symbolized God's means for sinners to draw near. Because on that box is where a sacrifice was made, where blood was shed in payment for sins. And the ark, the ark, powerless in and of itself, was actually meant to point people forward to a true and better sacrifice. One that would do far more than temporarily placate the holy God. Because this better sacrifice would atone for sin once and for all. Never needing to go again and make another sacrifice. Because he would provide one that would be able to accomplish atonement once and for all. And this perfect sacrifice is one that the Lord himself would make himself. God so loved sinners that all of those lambs sacrificed pointed towards the Lamb of God. His name was Jesus, God's Son, who came taking on flesh, becoming a man, living a perfect sinless life that you haven't lived and I haven't lived. He then took that sinless life and he laid it down. He went to the cross where his blood was shed. That power in the blood that we sang of is the blood of Jesus Christ. Shed for your sins and mine if we embrace him in faith. Jesus shed his blood for sinners. The true and better sacrifice made for sinners like you and like me. The perfect sin sacrifice by God himself allows people to actually stand before him. Can I just share with you one of my most favorite verses in all of the Bible? Ephesians 2, 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
We who were once separated from him because of our sin, unable to come into his presence for as holy as he is, have now been brought near, not by the blood of bulls and sacrifice on the top of a box, but through the blood of Jesus Christ who died on a tree. Oh, what he accomplished for us that we might be brought near. Here's what this means for you, God. God has provided a bridge, a bridge between you and him. Oh, when I was little, one of the first images I remember was a gospel tract that shows over here God and his magnificence and shows over here mankind and all of our folly and sin and fallenness. And in the middle was this terrible valley, this terrible valley. Hopeless are we to ever bridge that and come to God. But then you turn the page and what do you see? A wooden cross across that chasm. A bridge made by God through Jesus Christ who shed his blood so that sinners might now come across and enjoy fellowship with the Lord. And so vividly in my mind I knew Jesus is the way for me to come to God. God himself has provided a bridge between you and him. But you must humbly turn to his provided Savior if you are to stand before him. You can come no other way. There's no object you can create and give to him. There's no amount of rejoicing you can give over the return of his object. There's nothing that you can do that will appease him. All you must do is embrace Jesus Christ in faith, a faith that turns away from sin and embraces him as your Savior and your Lord forever. If you embrace Jesus, my friends, you've crossed the bridge, and you're with him, and you're with him forever. And now, if you have him, and he has you, you must always approach him with humility and trust and joy. Humility because, my friends, he is not your buddy. Nor is he ever to be trifle with. But he is the Lord God whom you come before. And trust because you come to him not as one who is in any way deserving, but because he has provided a way that requires faith, childlike reliance upon Christ. And joy. Joy because your heavenly father is now your heavenly father, and he welcomes you into his presence. You get to come before him in prayer. You get to come before him with his word. You get to come before him with his people. And one day when this body that's decaying dies away, you will be with the Father, with the Son, with his Spirit for all of eternity. And your eternity will be marked by joy in God. Oh, Lord, how could we ever repay you? There's no offering we could ever make that would satisfy. There's no pedestal we could ever create to promote something you've made. There's nothing we could ever do that would ever satisfy your anger. 
And yet, Father, in your kindness, in your eternal love, you have provided a way through your Son. Oh, Lord, we thank you that the true and better ark came for us. That your mercy seat came and laid down his life on a cross. And I pray, Lord, please, that anyone here who's perhaps been coming to these services for weeks now, that they, Lord, would recognize just how awesome you are in your holiness and just how lovely you are in your love to send your Son to be our Savior. Oh, Lord, let the people in this room know Christ in faith. I pray this in his most precious name.